jinkies. Oh, what's that gross book made out of skin? It's not a book. It's a tome made out of skin. Ew. What's it say? Behold the collected apocrypha of Stacy Ponder, the writer for Final Girl. And Anthony Hudson, the programmer for Queer Horror. And together they are... Oh my god! Don't read it out loud! Don't read it out Um, I have forgotten how to do this. I'm, I'm just, I'm just shocked that there's a light on in the bunker. There's a light on in the bunker. Um, no fresh air. No fresh air. The circulation is Circulation is rotten. Who knows what I'm breathing. Who knows if this, this could all just be a hallucination at this point. I just assume I live in a snow globe. I could be in a Love Simon snow globe from Target. <laughs> or a Love Victor snow globe. Or a Love Victor snow globe from Target Pride. Or <laughs> a St. Elsewhere snow globe for those of you who enjoy a reference to old television. But I'm in a snow globe. Right. It's Finally old... at home. <laughs> Finally at home in my snow globe. Uh, this is terrible. I don't know. It's We haven't done this show in so long. There's a lot happening in the world. Yeah, don't know if you noticed. Don't know if anyone's noticed. It just, it feels like we addressed it on social media. Um, but it just feels weird and inappropriate to kind of like take up space when... Uh, that space can be used in so many more constructive ways right now. Yeah. I mean, and by I, right I th- now, I mean until the United States is completely overthrown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, until the revolution, uh, I don't know, until there's a lot of heads rolling around everywhere. Yes. Um, I mean, under the best of circumstances, I think we tend to have those tinges of like, uh, could we be doing something better than talking on a podcast? Yeah. It just feels amplified right now, which is why we haven't been around for a couple of weeks. Yes. And why it feels weird to even be doing it now. To po- When we posted about this episode, it felt very strange. Oh, yeah. We had to go back and forth with each other over... Yeah. how to even make it like okay <laughs> yeah yeah um and a lot has happened beyond you know obviously we hope all of you are donating and if you are healthy and able to protesting out in the streets um and and really you know showing up for black lives matter uh mm-hmm. but beyond that even still even beyond the pandemic um I'm sure you all have seen everything that's happened in the horror world in the last, since our last episode. Yeah. Uh, but we're not talking about that today. We will talk about that again. We will talk about that. It's uh, just, you know, so much has happened in the last, like, since our last episode. I mean, for fuck's sake, Nancy Pelosi showed up in kente cloth, you know? Oh, my. Remember like, when we were like, let's do an episode on Scream? Wouldn't that be a who? Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> The next thing you know, Nancy Pelosi's wearing kente cloth. People oh, are marching everywhere. Uh, the the murder hornets. It's like what? What were those? Nobody even remembers them. They they, they got moment. pulled off the stage with the 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 cane, the big cane, the yeah. vaudeville cane, <laughs> like snagglepuss or whatever. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> their uh, big fangs can't cut the cane apart. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we'll, I think, because we had such a nice reception to our episode, The Ethics of Fandom, which was a few weeks ago, uh, talking about the whole Joe Bob Briggs thing and Sinestate and all of this, since so much has happened in the world of horror since then, we'll probably do some kind of a follow-up, I guess, if yeah. people want us to. Um, or even if you don't, fuck you, we'll do it anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it honestly, like there are much more important things happening, but this is yes. part of the systemic issues that are occurring right now that we need to address. So yeah, we'll be it, back yeah, to talk it, about it. It shouldn't be forgotten. It shouldn't be ignored. Um, and people, some people might not have any idea of the things that have been happening. Um, so we'll get to it, but this week we just wanted to kind of have this episode, this amazing episode, be its own thing and take a breather from everything that's been going on, if possible. Which is, you know, some of you already know what this episode is about, um, and, and what we're featuring on it, but it also, I feel like is still appropriate to the time because yes, the it's so relevant and the conversation we have is relevant and um and admittedly like we recorded this weeks ago when we were when when this was really the rioting and the protests and the showing up was really just beginning mm-hmm. and um and i say rioting as a point of pride <laughs> literally absolutely and um we have held back on it but i think that's why we are also releasing this episode and not postponing it further is because it really does address a lot of things that come out of what movie, Stacey? Suspiria. Suspiria, our favorite film. Our favorite film. Our sacred text. Uh, because that movie asked the question, why is everyone so ready to think the worst is over? And we're seeing that, the mess out there, the mess in here, the mess that's coming. The one that's coming. We're yeah. seeing that replicated in so many instances in the United States right now. Yeah, this movie, I mean, if you're going to talk about a movie, you know, I mean, we could have also talked about Nail Gun Massacre again. That's also, that's another movie that is so important. Yeah, that was next on the list. That was next on the list. No, but this movie is so important politically um, and in terms of, you know, queer horror, queer representation, etc. So many, so many topics. It just encompasses so much, which if you've listened to this show at all, you know how we feel about it. Um, we have no opinion whatsoever no opinion whatsoever Um, and so just to have this opportunity to talk with (laughs) the fucking screenwriter and the director (laughs) like I mean it's it's I must be in a snow globe because how could this have actually happened? I still can't believe this happened. Um, I'm still in a state of shock I have Susie Banyan has literally erased my memory uh, because yes we we Talk, we got to talk with Luca Guadagnino and Dave Kajanic. You'll hear it uh, really soon. Um, I have completely forgotten everything that took place over the course of this conversation, so I can't wait to re-listen myself. Well, um, to be fair, that said, you, <laughs> that said, in true Gay Lords of Darkness fashion, it was an absolute technological disaster. Because GodHatesFags.com. GodHatesFags.com. The signs were right. Um, at first, Luca couldn't get on. Luca's in Italy right now and couldn't join us with, he was on an iPad and that something, something technologically, he couldn't join us. 
hours later, we finally hook up all this. We get maybe five minutes into it, like right after the first question, Anthony's internet explodes. There's a storm happening over here where I'm in my wing of the manor. And Anthony just loses internet. So I don't want people to think that I was like hogging the conversation. Like I was sitting on. (laughs) You just muted me. (laughs) I just muted Anthony so I could do all the talking. (laughs) No, instead, I was like trying to ask questions and listen to the answers and be present for that while also texting with Anthony. And I'm like, what do I do? (laughs) What do I do? And I'm like, will you ask a question? And Anthony's like, I don't know what you've been talking about. And so it's just like. Pulled in 10 directions at once and also like just being excited for this opportunity and going into a fugue state. Um, So if it's mostly me talking, that's why. And even in all the whole, every way that that played out, it was a dream come true. Oh my God. I have nothing but love for these two incredible artists and filmmakers. um, And I'm so grateful we got to share this time to talk to them. And I think you'll feel the same listeners listening to what they have to say about this movie. Um, (sighs) It's really nice to just get four fags together to queen out about an amazing film that didn't get the reception it deserved. Exactly. So uh, here it is. Anthony, I think I am in a coma right now. It's the only reasonable explanation for the fact that we are not alone in Stately Gaylord's Manor. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm still walking through everything kind of in slow motion from when the doorbell rang and I opened the door and, <laughs> and admitted these guests. <laughs> uh, we have at our Sabbath today, uh, we have Dave Kajanik and Luca Guadagnino, who, I mean, whatever, they wrote and directed Suspiria. No big deal. A movie that you might have heard of. <laughs> because we've talked about it so many times. You guys, thank you so much for being here. It's a feather in our cap to be here. I think we wanted to start off by talking about this film in terms that we've never heard it discussed except on our own show, which is um, Suspiria as queer horror. This is such a deeply queer horror film. And I guess we just wanted to talk about that in terms of like... How much intentionality is there? How much is happenstance? Anything like that? Yeah, Luca, do you have a? Do you want to start us off? Well, I mean, one of the novels that uh, I read when I was a teenager that I truly dreamt of making into a movie was titled Queer, and it is by William Burroughs. So I am quite, uh, uh, let's say, close to the topic and to the subject matter and to the approach. Um, and in the sense that queer, um, uh, in a way, it's it's a descri- the description of a sort of a sort of resistance to the um, let's say um, ideas of the center. Uh, in that regard, I do believe that the Suspiria is really a queer horror movie. And I would also add to that that I think it's what I hope it's a sort of a, a new kind of queer. Uh, piece of cinema in the sense that you know we there was a there was a p- long period where queer cinema had to uh, keep all of its sort of best ideas in subtext, and then we had a phase in queer cinema where everything uh, was it was a- available to be signified that audiences weren't um, turning their backs on indications of queer cinema sort of scene by scene, but I think with this film 
and Luke and I talked a fair bit about th- this very question of how, what language we were going to be speaking uh, in terms of, of, of these politics and these identity politics. And I think we realized that we're, we were to the point in the history of queer cinema where we could actually relax back into having uh, some or a lot of the uh, inter, inter- dynamics between characters that were happening uh, sort of uh, on queer frequencies relax back into the subtext because people would still see them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't need to be pushed so hard to be present. Uh, so the fact that anyone's calling it a piece of queer cinema is exciting to us because that gambit seems to have worked. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, it's the sensibility of the film. I think it's in the relationships. Um, and I've talked with straight friends who have seen it and they, it just doesn't register to them, which is not completely surprising. Um, but they just see all the relationships as one way. And, oh, Susie and Sarah are great friends. And Susie and Blanc are like mother and daughter. <laughs> Which is there, certainly. But subtextually, these relationships take on another meaning. Yeah, it's like it's like that thing with, uh, like, Susie and Sarah. And, and uh, Susie's saying, you know, she's only slept in bed with her sister. People read that almost as a sisterly relationship. Like... Like the haunting, you know, going all the way back to the haunting with uh, Theo and Nell being like sisters. People, straight people, I think, tend to want to read everything as it's more familial or or it's more friendship, feminine friendship, right? But it's like it feels so much more deeply queer. And honestly, we had, Luca, if you remember, there were scenes, more explicit scenes in the script. Uh, I'm thinking of two in particular, one between Susie and Sarah that where they were sexual and there was another scene it was in a vision but it was a scene between Susie and Helena Marcos that was sexual uh, and, and 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 we decided that we didn't need them that that in fact the ambiguity around that gave us more uh, voltage than to be explicit about either of those two things and i believe in the ambiguity more of anything else uh, above everything else i think it's important that uh, the, that uh, uh, in general, uh, in approaching material, uh, some have to escape the uh, literal of uh, any sense of vision, whether it's a straight vision or it's a non-straight vision. The literal is always a sort of poison, uh, sometimes presents itself in a very seductive color, sometimes it's transparent and you can't spot it, but in general, to be literal in a way, it's how you poison the well uh, of the water. And in this case, ambiguity, as Dave said, is really the, 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 the key here. And it's, it's important, it was important for, for me in writing it and in, in our conversations, Luca, to, to have gone to those explicit places, but they're not things necessarily that are of use to the final, the final film. I'm not going to lie. They might be of use to me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I was going to say, I, when when you said uh, explicit between Susie and Sarah, I could feel Stacy exploding. <laughs> um, and then when you said Susie and Marcos, oh I died. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's, it feels so much, sometimes too, and this is something I go back and forth on as a queer viewer who loves queer horror films. Um, I am almost drawn to the subtextual because it's more like it's more coded. It feels more queer in that respect. Like it has to be unspoken or exchanged through glances or gesture, right? Like it's cruising in a way. Well, and also think about the world we're in in the film where people are communicating without speaking literally. <laughs> There's, you know, the subtext occupies a very different place in the Helena Marcos company than it does in other other worlds and other movies. Mm hmm. That's true. 
And as a viewer, it's more of an exercise to get to dig into the film and try to figure out how, how do these two people feel about each other? And in Suspiria, there's so many layers because it's what they're saying to each other verbally, what they're saying to each other silently sometimes, and what they're also saying to each other through their bodies and through their art. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can see why at the end of the day, it would have it would have felt like a, a, a real compromise to make so many things explicit when we have so many vehicles for ambiguity in the film. At the end of the day, what is not spoken and said in a literal way makes its journey through the consciousness of the audience, no matter what the audience wants to believe in their consciousness. Uh, I, think, uh, I think that's what is uh, uh, remarkable about Dave's script and uh, what is the attempt that, I, that, that we all try to make in making the movie. Well, and I think to that end, like it all... Um... It, it makes the art more collaborative too, where then it's up to the viewer to really complete the connection. Um, something that Stacy and I have both been really interested in with Suspiria is Suspiria sort of, at, and reading it as the story of Susie Banyan's self-awakening or of, of almost like coming out. And in leading up to this, I was really interested to see that, Dave, you're from Ohio, originally. I am. Which Susie also we know is from Ohio. Wait, ask me, ask me where I'm from. Oh, oh my God. Where are you from? Ohio. Ah, yes! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that Thank you for that. And then, <laughs> and then I was also reading an interview with Luca where Luca described seeing the movie early on and then not being able to see it again and then like drawing posters of it and then drawing posters and writing Luca's Suspiria on them. And that reminds me of Susie sitting at home like drawing on the map to Berlin. Um, and so I'm wondering about like if you both of you could speak about yourselves as artists as Susie Banyan or this kind of being the story of the artist's awakening or what 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 of yourselves you brought into these characters? Well, I think that Susie Banyan carries with herself a level of uh, delicacy and a level of uh, uh, um, um, smoothness and uh, uh, carefulness. Uh, despite being uh, the uncanny mother superiorum, that I reckon uh, very close to the way I feel myself. And I'm not saying that I am like that, but it's how I perceive myself. So I like to think that uh, I am, in a way, a very um, nice and quiet uh, agent of the, of the, of, of the terrible. Um, uh. <laughs> And, and, and many people, I, I, I many people a... sorry Dave to interrupt you, but just to say as a, as a, as a, as a, as a as addendum, many people think that my most personal movie is uh, Call Me By Your Name, and I, I think that's not right. The, the really, really personal movie I made, uh, among the ones more personal, there is Suspiria for sure. And I, I have a very um, complicated relationship to this this concept of the final girl because I I grew up gay in a very rural place in Ohio and you know at the advent of cable television and so a large part of my diet as a teenager as an as, as a closeted teenager in a rural place was slasher films and so you know I seized very early on the trope of the final girl as 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 you know one of the few things I was being given by popular culture to aspire to and just such a strange thing to to, to say 
But I used to play a game with a friend of mine who lived down the street where he would be the killer and I would be the final girl and he would chase me from farm building to farm building with an axe or a pitchfork and I'd have to keep myself from getting killed. I don't think he would have really killed me, but it, was, it, <laughs> it felt like he might have when we were playing this game. And so I, I sort of exercised that, that energy back then. And when I, you know, when I got to a point where I was out and a point where I was sort of comfortable in my own version of, of, of gender identity and all of that, I didn't need that trope anymore. So I could graduate to something much more empowering. And so when Luke and I were talking about Suspiria, we talked very early about the idea of just tipping this concept of the final girl on its head and making this really be about Susie's awakening, Susie's sort of coming into herself uh, and, and have that really be the energy of the film, not just surviving. I think that's, for me, that's one of the biggest takeaways of this film is like compared to the original, which Susie Banyan is the conquering hero who walks away as the dance academy burns behind her. And here, Susie Banyan is the conquering hero and she takes over. She claims her place and takes her power. And I think that's a trend that we're seeing in horror movies now where the final girl isn't just reactionary. She really is an agent of her own destiny. And it's just really refreshing. But it is, it is that stated, it's very smart. And I, was, I, I must say that it is very telling that a movie made in Europe in 1976-7 by an artist or a supposed artist like Dario Argento who was uh, operating in a, in, a, in a way, in an industry that was not putting any boundaries to his concepts and his ideas. Uh, and also who was uh, producing his own movies and uh, at the height of his powers after having made movies like Deep Red and, and the other movies he made. I mean, it's very telling that that movie, Suspiria, is one of the most reactionary, as you said, and most conservative films when it comes to discuss what does it mean. It means that there is a woman coming from America who is a sort of virgi- virginal kind of character who has to, to destroy the uh, decadent layer of obscurity that comes in Europe from women. And that is was one of the most important aspects of the movie that, that Dave and I truthfully despised and really didn't want to be having anything to do with. Uh, I know now that many people who are fans of Dario's movie are up in arms against what I'm saying. <laughs> But to be honest, that is absolutely uh, an, an impossible to, um, to contradict because that is exactly Dario's uh, vision of life. Particularly, uh, I, I must, to bring a proof of that, I must bring to the table what the great Dario Nicolodi said about Dario Argento after they made the movie Phenomena, Creepers in, in America. She left him as a, as a companion. They were together for like more than 12 years because she felt that she didn't want to be part anymore of the artistic pretense of good and bad and the angelic and the demonic where the angelic is the affluent white person, whether it's a woman or a man. Um, and, uh, and that sh- they split after that movie. Then they made a few movies afterwards together, but it was never again like that. And it is interesting that it is Daria Nicolodi who wrote Suspiria with Dario, who have brought some sense of grandeur 
in the depiction of women, despite the heaviness of what Dario did with the movie, uh, in, in the way in which she wrote characters like Tanner or characters like Miss Banyan. Uh, sorry, uh, Miss uh, Blanche, Blanc. I'm talking about the original. So, yeah, I, I, I endorse everything you said, Stacey. I, I love the fact that you, you know, in the credits of the film and in interviews I've seen or read, you're both always, you give credit to Daria Nicolodi, who is basically almost erased from the history of this film, um, got pushed out of Inferno, her contributions essentially got pushed out of Inferno, and is not ever really viewed by horror fans as as much of a creator of Suspiria as Dario Argento is. But, so Daria, just, but, Daria, but the world of women that was at the base of the, of the movie, the idea of reading Franz Wedeck in the, the Education of Girls, Mine Hannah, all that comes from Daria, not from Dario. Dario must be one of the greatest derivative uh, filmmakers of uh, the end of last century. Um, and I'm not saying that in a dismissive way. I'm saying, because by the way, people can say that I am derivative, having made not one but two remakes now, and probably doing a third with Scarface. Uh, so I'm not uh, picture, coloring that, this notion with the negativity. I'm just saying that Dario, having a kind of uh, uh, grow, grew up uh, on, the, on the shadow of filmmakers like Mario Bava, definitely is one of the f first uh, postmodernists who ha somehow derive from what's before him. Uh, I think Daria, on the contrary, may have had a sense of uh, uh, someone forging something new from an element. And that's interesting. The friction between these two tensions, it, it is what brings to the table probably um, something uh, uh, riveting like uh, Suspiria, the movie by Dario Argento. You've both talked extensively about how when you first decided, like when the ball was really rolling on this project, that you focused in on 1977 and how much political turmoil there was and the decision to set it in a real place and break away from the sort of fairy tale setting of the original film. Um, so if we could talk about that, I'm also really interested in when you were creating this, were you thinking of contemporary politics? Because it's so reflective of what is happening right now, what's happening in America right now. Well, I, I can speak to the second question first, which is, you know, I think you you don't want to risk being polemical about things. So I don't know that we had any direct connections to contemporary politics that we were we, that we were servicing. I think that's all that's always a bit of a mistake, but we of course knew that in, de in sort of delving into German autumn, of course there will be parallels. Um, you know, I'd point to the idea of denial and how quickly, you know, denial can provide a structure it can provide a structure for the conscience of a group, whether that's a race or a society or a city or whatever. But denial is fascistic by its nature, right? I mean, it has laws about what can be let in and what can't. And, you know, nostalgia is a bit fascistic as well. And they're, I think of them as sort of cousins somehow. And nostalgia, of course, lets us put a sort of a cheery face on denial. So 
The former fills the space the latter creates. And that, that's happening in the film, obviously, and it's also happening today. I mean, think of how shocking it was to many Americans when Elizabeth Warren said she wanted to have a serious conversation about reparations for black Americans. And there's a reason she wanted to start that conversation, and we're seeing the reason out in the, playing out in the streets right now. You know, we were Americans, and I'm an American, and in this case, writing a film about Europe in a lot of ways. America is a society now that knows how to manage nostalgia, but not guilt and not shame. In Europe, nostalgia is harder, so it's, 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 it's cousin denial does a lot of the heavy lifting. So I, I think of it that way. The politics of today and the politics of 1977, they're fueled by the same engine. And until we fix that engine, we're going to keep getting further and further iterations of these same dynamics. And speaking of 77, uh, we can uh, just say briefly uh, that uh, the... Uh, the uh, let's say the idea that Dario's movie was uh, uh, under the um, you know an, under a crystal dome that was kind of uh, sealing off uh, everything that was really in front of him while he was doing his movie uh, to the degree of of of, of uh, really drowning or sw- swimming and drowning or emerging itself into a world of pure fantasy and uh, someone would say bringing the anxieties of the time into the way in which the movie was anxious we felt that was in a way uh, important uh, in doing again this story to make sure that we lifted this crystal dome and let the air of 1977 occupy the space that has been vacuumed to me, it makes the two films, the remake and the original, such marvelous bookends. Because, you know, your film is grounded in reality and is a reflection of what was happening while Dario was making his fairy tale fantasy. Um, and so when fans are just an either or, or, you know, the but the remake doesn't have bright colors. <laughs> just seems kind of reductive to me. I guess. Again, also the question of colors. It's... Uh... I said it many times, and again, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but the sense of color of Suspiria would not be there without Mario Bava and Cotta Fabi. Yeah. And so the, the, primary, the use of primary colors, apart from the uh, Luciano Tovoli idea of bathing the spaces with the reflections of primary colors on velvet, which uh, at the end of the day sounds more a gimmick than something that makes a real difference to what has been done by Mario Bava with gelatins. I think that uh, it's a bit reductive because again, Dario was really influenced for the best by Bava and uh, we have been influenced uh, hopefully for the best by, uh, for instance, the great work of uh, Fassbinder's cinematographer Michael Balaus. So both Luciano Tovoli, Dario Argento, Mario Bava, Fassbinder and Balhaus, all of them, all of us, we play with colors and we have multiple possibilities of colors. It's not that we don't have the colors. We have so many colors. They are different kind of colors. Probably because to go back to the primary colors after Suspiria, after Dick Tracy, could have been sounded in a way 
uh, tone deaf. Yeah, I mean, the your, your film dissolves into red. <laughs> like, I think you, to me, as a viewer, it seems like the color is used as punctuation marks rather than just an overall kind of you know, drowning us in primary colors. It just seems like punctuation marks. Or a language, frankly. I think the, the language changes uh, in, that, in, the, in the last act of the film, and, and you have to be able to represent that visually somehow. Anthony, can you hear us all now? I think I'm back. I'm so sorry. This is the, my internet chose the best time <laughs> to explode. <laughs> it, it was honestly the Marcos revelation just broke me and now I'm <laughs> and my internet. So I apologize. I am now back. Just for Anthony's uh, stability, he must uh, remember that Susie has a very sexual <laughs> dance on the floor when Miss Marcos tries to touch her from the, from the floor below. So it's there. It's there. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, I didn't realize that was like a come to my window moment. (laughs) I love that. So uh, thank you also. I just want to say thank you for addressing and bringing Daria Nicolodi into this conversation because, I mean, she's the mother of the three mothers, right? Um, but, (laughs) But that brings me to thinking about all of these... I mean, Jessica Harper in this film, um, Ingrid Coven, uh, Angela Winkler, like, uh, Tilda and Dakota, all these incredible actresses that... that Mia they, Goff they, they, they feel and uh, Renée Re- Rene Sotendick, uh, Christine Leboot, uh, Fabrizia Sacchi, and we can go on and on and on. Thank Al- you for Alec Beck, uh, Malgozia, Bela, wonderful, wonderful people. Um... And that's yeah. the thing is like that you're you are coming out here and you are naming all of these actors like uh, I feel like other filmmakers might not immediately just go into crediting and naming every single person. But this really feels like they are co-authors in a way on this film. And like some, like Stacey and I noticed even the dancers are like noted as like co-creators of the dance. Um And so we were just wondering, like, what was this act of collaboration with all of these incredible women like, what did that, what was that like? Was that the, just the most powerful thing you've experienced? Was that an actual <laughs> Black Sabbath? Was that the coven? Like, what was that experience like? Uh, everything goes back to anxiety. I personally don't have any anxieties about uh, authorship. Uh, and I believe, truthfully, that uh, to make films, it's like waves of, uh, in solitudes and, 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 and enormous uh, collaborations. So I've, I believe that you can't do a movie all by yourself. Many of the movies that in a way comes from filmmakers who seems to be a bit dull in needing to exert a complete control uh, are dull movies and we will not name them but there are many famous ones and uh, <laughs> so I believe that uh, um, when you have the privilege of having so many wonderful personalities to collaborate with and uh, so many people in the position of listening and also in the position of communicating, it is uh, absolutely imperative and totally na- organic and holistic that the multitudes of conversations and the multitudes of voices are woven into a tapestry that eventually becomes a movie. 
So when you work with people like those ones we mentioned, starting from Dave, of course, and ending with, uh, let's say, Dan Perry, who has made the amazing uh, graphic design and poster of the film. So when you work with somebody like this incredible group of people, and let's say 90% of them were women, uh, you are in the, such a privileged position of having so many inputs, so wonderful inputs, so really essential inputs. So, I mean, of course, to hire, to cast, to invite, to join this movie, people like Angela and Ingrid and, uh, and, um, and René, it is in a way also a way to homage the movies we loved, that we grew up with, we really muscled our heart and brains with. But at the same time, it is also a way in which we want to work with the authors in their own merits of those movies we love. Because I personally believe that Schlunderf without Winkler is not Schlunderf, and Fassbinder without Kaven is not Fassbinder, and so on and so on. And uh, so we had many ghosts, many spirits, many um, uh, invitations that uh, were reclaimed on set and off set that eventually participated to bring to life the movie you saw. And this has been fantastic. Like, I was stupidly and banally uh, preoccupied before shooting that having to direct uh, so many women all together in very big set pieces may have become a sort of madness. And yet, uh, I was so completely finally wrong because the, pro the process was so beautiful, so generous, so mutual. And I really remember the process of making that film as one of the most jolly times, despite let's say, working under dire uh, uh, corporations uh, conditions and uh, in a very cold place during the winter. It was warm and heartwarming. I've seen interviews with a few of the actresses who just basically echo those sentiments, so it must have just been a really familial kind of set, which is wonderful, and I think it shows in the film. Also, um, I don't know if it's a question for you, Dave, or Luca, or the actors themselves, um, but there are so many small touches, so many small acting choices that are so truthful and really flesh out these characters. And I'm just wondering where they come from. Like, Dave, when you said earlier, Ohio, <laughs> and and how loaded that one small word is. And is that Dakota Johnson bringing something to the character? Is that Luca, you worked with her on the character? Or is it in the script, which I have not read? I mean, I can answer from my point of view, which is that I, I take, uh, as part of my responsibility, doing uh, a lot of work in terms of... Um, you know whether it's in the script or not, in terms of sort of emotionally blocking things, uh, you know, just so that I understand what the paths that characters are on and what's happening to them when those paths intersect and all of that. So, you know, I would say one of the pleasures of collaborating with Luca and the way that he collaborates with his cast and crew 
uh, is that I, I honestly can't remember example to example whether an idea was mine or Luca's or Dakota's or Tilda's. And I think it speaks to what Luca was saying earlier about there being a very, um, there, there's an, a, an, an openness to these collaborations that is, um, that's uh, vulnerable um, for sure. Um, but that's rigorous as well. And so I think, you know, in the, in the example you gave, I'm, I'm sure that it, in some way in the script, it was pointing out that that word was, was um, charged somehow. Um, but whether or not that's what cued Dakota into it or whether that was a decision Luca made on the day, I'm happy to say it, I, I don't know and it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know, I knew, I, having worked on A Bigger Splash with Luca, I knew how he, he works. So I tried to write a script that would be that would have as many doors open to those collaborative impulses and spasms as possible. That's part of my job writing a script for Luca is to make sure that everything is uh, available for anyone to pick up that they want to pick up, but that there's also room that that the script doesn't need to be uh, the final word on anything. And let's not forget that Dakota Johnson is a wonderful performer. Yeah, it's just having seen the movies so many times, you pick up on so many like it's it's the way Mia Goth eats her cake in that in that cafe, you know, which is so fully realized for such an inconsequential thing. Stacy, the beauty of our job is that you have a great performer like Mia really embodying the character because she has been uh, listening to what's on the page. You know, like, I think that every single word in which you read the, the character of Sarah in an, in an actress as uh, uh, emotionally intelligent and intuitive as Mia delivers her to be such precise performer in that scene. So, again... I believe that without a wonderful script, there is not a great movie. And I'm yeah. not talking about, let's say, what an executive in Hollywood would claim is a good script. I'm talking about a, a sort of uh, uh, um, literary tool that opens up a lot of doors to people that are going to enter in these rooms throughout the process. It's just... It's such a good movie, you guys. <laughs> like, I know that that's just... It really is. I mean, just the care that has gone... Like, that's what comes through, is how much care, like, Dave, in this script. Of, we talked a little bit hours ago before we were on the air about the research that you did into this and the glimpses that we get of that research and how it informs this world that you're creating. Well, and, and that's something also that everyone's sharing in. I mean, everyone in this film did an, an enormous amount of research. I just happened to do mine first. And so, you know, with Luca's help, and we had research assistants, and, and lots of people were participating in that. But, you know, I sort of was the first person in the script to sort of curate some of that research for everyone else. But but I, it certainly doesn't, it shouldn't end with just what's on the page. And, you know, we were making a, a, a adjustments um, you know, we always do up until the up until the day we shoot scenes um, for these films, based on new things we find, uh, research that leads to other research that leads to other research. And I just, you know, my point of view about it is that I I, I want to know so much that um, the 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 it's the minority of things that I've found out in my research that make the page because there's so much of it. And you know, so in conversations with 
the actors, with, with Luca. Um, I, you know, I want to know a lot more than what's on the page. Um, and I think everyone in, in one of Luca's films feels the same way. Everybody wants to go in to these collaborations with their vulnerability intact, but with, with a level of rigor as well. And, and the way that Luca leads a production um, encourages that from everyone. It's it's just remarkable to watch. I'm sorry, I just got a text from Anthony. He's trying to reset his internet. I don't I don't know what Marcos did to him. <laughs> <laughs> so he's gonna try again uh, to come back. We need so, a we need a witness, Anthony. We need a witness. <laughs> um, oh, Klemperer. He's an example of one thing I love about this movie is that every time I watch it. Uh, my loyalties tend to shift or my feelings about a specific character can change. And you've just sort of, for a movie about a coven of witches, I think you've obliterated the good evil dichotomy. Good. Uh, And so one minute I just want to be Vendegast because she's incredible. (laughs) And then the next minute, you know, you realize how cruel she is. And you say, oh, no, or Klemperer, and, you know, how guilty is he? How do I feel about him? Do I, do I absolve him? Never mind what Susie does, I guess. So was that, that was a conscious thing for you? Certainly, certainly. I mean, I, I'm, I was fascinated to, to start reading. Um, when people started writing about the film, I was fascinated to start reading about how people were interpreting that last scene between Susie and Klemperer. Uh, I think it's very telling if you if you come out of the film thinking that she's given him a gift. That's very telling. <laughs> and yeah. If you walk out thinking that she's just effectively erased the only witness to her crimes, that's very telling. And you know, I, uh, ambiguity can be um, employed uh, uh, sort of in the service of laziness, and that's a kind of ambiguity I don't enjoy. Um, but this kind of ambiguity, I think, is sort of was politically necessary in this film. Um, and so it's it's you know gratifying to to, to know that you can you, you can watch this film a number of times and still feel your assessment of the characters and your loyalty shifting. Um, that that's that's a, I take that as a compliment, and I'm sure Luca does as well. Yeah, last last night watching it in preparation for this, um, you know, I get on when Holler is really going all in on Klemperer. Um, really reading him the riot act. I'm like, yeah, you take that. And then, but watching him trudge across the bridge and basically just like he did with Anka, he just throws everything overboard and removes himself from having to do any of the work. And I get angry, but then I think, what would I do? When faced with, I mean, insurmountable odds, I hope I would have the courage to step up no matter the personal cost. Every time I watch it, I feel differently. Unless we're talking about uh, Caroline's corncob pipe. I have to bring up Caroline's corncob pipe <laughs> at that final dinner because that is a choice and I want to know whose choice that was. But that final dinner, these women are sexual predators. Also, I think it's really interesting the way they sort of weave their spells through dance, through a glare, through a flick of the wrist. And then when they want to ensorcel all of these dancers, it becomes very, very, they're all sexual predators. Yeah, I mean, certainly there, there's a, um, the concept of predation is a very uh, 
slippery uh, meaning in this film. Um, as, as we were talking about text versus subtext in this film, it's also, you know, the idea of, of, of what one could, would consider um, predation. When you, take, when you take someone's, when you clear out someone's soul from her body and replace it, you know, w- what do you measure that as? Um, and, and if that, per, you know, and how do you factor in issues of, of you know, complicity and consent in something like that? There's a, there's a, there's a lot of text in the film about how, you know, they, they tried um, with Patricia to, to get her consent because they thought it would make a stronger bond and it didn't work because she took it back at the end. Uh, and now they're deciding with with a new a new young woman to forego consent by just simply manipulating in her into being in that final moment, ready to give her her body over to to Marcos. And it's you know obviously what is the thing that derails that, or at least attempts to derail it, is just that Blanc has formed uh, an emotional bond with Susie that. Um, that makes that that final act of of seducing her, if you want to use that word, into giving herself up, much much harder. Um, and so, yeah, so yes, that, this, it is a subject. It's just a very complicated subject to talk about with with the film. Yeah, and it, it seems like that totally comes through with Blanc too, and in, in this uh, the obsession with this like brown eyed girl, like how the eyes switch from. Um... Susie basically takes on Sarah's eyes as if Blanc gives them to her uh, and that she has those brown eyes through the rest of the movie. And I think in a, in the script, I think we has, we found a version of the script that I think is before it made it to shooting, um, but it refers to the brown eyes as like um, bl- one of Blanc's kinks almost. Yeah, it's a sort of a, f- a fetish. But, you know, it's fascinating to me how few people understand that that change has taken place. Can you imagine? You've got Mia Goth's face and Dakota Johnson's face, and and most people don't even realize uh, the change. It, it makes me wonder where they're looking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty enormous change to make in a person's appearance. Yeah. Well, and especially when you're confronted with Mia Goth in the middle of folk, and and it is, she's almost like got those. She's like got these glowing eyes, and it's very um, Fulci, like the Beyond kind of referential yeah. in that moment uh that it, it seems like it should be so apparent and yet it's the same thing with like the reads of queerness where it's just something that's easily missed by many viewers i think um which i guess also this this train of thought kind of brings me to um a question that stacy and i have had is uh we're, we're really interested in dance in this film and dance as a as a means of uh, of a language and as art making and as uh, witchcraft dances spells um, and what kind of informed that and under that question is this really just a lesbian sex coven well uh, <laughs> the first thing to be said is that uh, uh, it is uh, it, it has been uh, imperative for Dave and I that uh, the um, um, the fact that the original movie was set in a ballet school uh, had to be taken seriously, which means that uh, dance was going to become a protagonist, not just a decoration. So we moved away from the classical ballet into contemporary dance, and we uh, didn't want to have uh, pupils, but we wanted to have a proper company. 
And then when that happened, the, the concept of dance and, and the way in which dance was a character in itself became something important. Um, uh, I don't know if it is, this is a coven of lesbians. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I believe that uh, what definitely is uh, of the knowledge of our wonderful witches is that men are dull from their perspective. And how can we not uh, agree with that? Because <laughs> <laughs> there's just that breakfast, that amazing breakfast scene where we hear the voting. Oh, it's, so, it's such a cool as, scene. As the camera pans around. And it's such a cool song from Tom oh. York. And the camera pans around, and most of them look like they just got laid, and they're coming in in pairs, and it just really sets <laughs> such a vibe. Don't forget that they were waking up off of a, a ritual that went wrong. So they were really not, I mean, they were getting laid with the most uh, exciting and, and terrible of their acts, in a way. Um, I believe, though, that... Uh, there is something so wonderful in a group of women together in my life always. So I don't really ask myself uh, the question whether or not the group of women who wants to be together and are together and spend time together and live under the same roof together necessarily are lesbians, honestly. Um, there is a greater power to that in a way. Um, it makes me think of uh, the, their line about Patricia saying she was she she wanted to blow up you know you know department stores instead of the power we were offering her. I think you know to Luca's point, these witches have so many more things at their disposal um, than earthly sex to yeah. kind of <laughs> to, to, to draw off of. I think Don't they I, that the youngest of these witches may be 120 years old. So maybe they are just That's not true. any more interested in sex uh, as they would have been in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s maybe. But, you know, when you pass maybe 70s, maybe 80s, definitely after 90s, they may have become <laughs> kind of uh, <laughs> not really into that anymore. And, 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 and I think it's, it, it probably should be said that I don't know that there were many people who left the film uh, wanting to go get laid, and so I, I think the, the wow. concept of maybe. <laughs> I mean, we bring our I... own reads sometimes. I, we, yeah. we bring our critical analysis, and then we bring our own reads sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then I then I bring the gay agenda. Yeah. You know, you know how it is. <laughs> but it it does. I I wonder about Susie. I mean, I want there to be so many prequels about Susie's life in Ohio. Um, but just, I love that character. She's one of my favorite characters in anything. Just that she, imagining her having to build this life sort of in secret, um, anytime she got found out for taking a trip or doing this or doing that, she was punished in horrible ways. Um, and just having no one to share these yearnings with, probably to practice on her own, maybe behind the barn when nobody was looking. Um, and then to just to watch her journey and watch her be accepted and to see the validation of her as an artist is really moving. 
And I guess that's not a question. I just wanted to say it. <laughs> I, I'm interested, too, uh, while we're talking about, like, Stacy. you said you want to hear more about, you would love to know about Susie's background. And I'm always wondering, like, did the question ever arise or is it does it even present itself in code in the film of um, we know Susie is superiorum, but do we or do you have any idea where the other two mothers are? Because there's still some darkness and some tears wandering mm. this earth somewhere, I would assume. And was that ever a conversation in the making of this particular story? Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> But Dave, we, we, do you remember we, we, we talked about a second chapter? Actually, this was named, was titled Suspiria Part 1 for many, many years. And, uh, yeah. and eventually, because of the ways in which the movie was presented to the world by our dear friends at Amazon, the movie wasn't so successful to, uh, let's say, allow us to indulge into a second chapter. But maybe in time, I don't know. Maybe Stacy and Anthony are helping us to establish a sense of cult to this that maybe someone <laughs> will say, let's do it, let's do part two. Let, let, let me just say that there are things uh, that were removed from the, the final cut of the film that were in the film in the first place to, to potentially lay a platform for where those other mothers are. I don't want to say more than that because I think it's fun to be coy about it. But oh. um, but but there there were things and and there are still things in the film in the cut you've seen uh, that are there for that. But there were explicitly things to set up um, the the other mothers, um, particularly one other mother. But we had to remove them because it really seemed um, like we didn't we shouldn't play that game. That we should tell this story. Uh, rigorously and in a way that felt complete, mm. uh, and then if we were if we were to move on, we could we could cross that bridge when we came. Yeah, because those are other stories, whereas this is Susie's story. Um, but that right. makes sense. I mean, like, I mean, I just feel that like any time I see Griffith begin to get those profuse tears, and then Olga mirroring them, or vice versa, I always, you know, I can't help but think of another mother out there, and begin to wonder. Um, <laughs> That's so exciting. Speaking of the old, the Olga scene, um, oh. which remains one of the most brutal scenes I've seen in horror in recent memory, and yet there's not a drop of blood in it until they drag her away at the end of it, um, which really flouts our expectations for Suspiria, given the sort of grand guignol death set pieces in the original yeah, razor film. Razor wire and just razor wire and blood everywhere and i'm just wondering what your relationships both of you are with horror films in terms of what you want to see the kind of horror films you want to create just your relationship if you call yourself a horror fan i guess i'm a total horror fan yeah we're both very 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 much horror fans and 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 not the kind of horror fans that would like would like there to be sort of um like a caste system of horror, you know, like uh, I'm not so interested in the idea of elevated horror. I think it's, I think it's a bullshit concept. I think there's lazy horror and I think there's uh, rigorous horror and I'd rather be in the latter category with Luca than other places. Well, to call it to when they call certain films elevated horror, it just denigrates all the rest of them. Right. So. Sure. Also there are the, 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 the experience scene... of watching horror movies. It's so complex and speaks for the way and the moment in which you see them. So, you know, like when you see Friday the 13th at the age of 14, 
you have an experience of that movie that is so exciting and then in time depending on your upbringing and the the let's say what you read in your life and who you meet in your life you may learn that maybe that movie was not as a liberating experience as you felt it was but yet it played as a liberating experience when you saw it at the age of 14 so it really depends it depends on, on, on a lot of stuff definitely there has been a very depressive period of time in which mainstream horror films including the ones that were made off of the studio system but still they were kind of mainstream in their way of thinking kind of deprived the genre of its uh, um, subversive politics. politics and capacity of, of, of being subversive but the genre in itself it's probably the most powerful of all the genres in fact, I, I was just a few months ago in Milan with Luca working on something together, and and the, I think the last, maybe the last couple of nights I was there, we traded horror films. I showed Luca a film he hadn't seen, and he showed me a film I hadn't seen. So we're very much horror people. Hmm. He liked them both. Yours was better in in in, in as, a, as a whole, but you were surprised positively by something you weren't completely sold on on paper. Absolutely. Yes, it was it, it was it was more human than I thought it was going to be. It was really more character driven. Hmm, are you talking about Saw 4? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. No. Uh I showed Luca The Black Coat's Daughter and Luca showed me Doctor Sleep. Um, I loved both movies very much. I saw Doctor Sleep in Tokyo and I was so excited by it. Beautiful movie. Very touching. And then uh, Dave's choice was fantastic. I still have to see that one. Stacy. I know. Well, I know. I've been too busy watching Suspiria over and over. (laughs) Give it a break. (laughs) Is that that a problem? (laughs) I think it's really interesting that uh, we all had slasher films were our big sort of gateways and big loves as teenagers. Yeah. Well, they speak to the, the size of your emotions when you're a teenager, right? I mean, you really feel like, you know, it makes me think of, you know, when I saw, um, uh, what was the Lars von Trier film uh, with Kristen Dunst about uh, depression? Oh, Melancholia. Melancholia. It's sort of like, you know that somebody told Lars von Trier at one point, Lars, cheer up. It's not the end of the world. And he was like, fuck you. Of course, it, for somebody who's clinically depressed, it's the end of the world. And I'm going to show you what that feels like. I feel like slasher films, when you're a teenager and you feel like everyone's, uh, against you, do you know what I mean? That you're the, the that you're going to be paying for other people's sins all your life. Like uh, you really respond to those movements in those films. Um, I guess one. I I don't know if you've seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The two of you. Not yet. But, it's not yet. It's been recommended to me about a million times. Um, but there are parallels to me between that movie and this, which are women and queer women working. Outside, like they're not being afforded power by the patriarchy or the Reich or society in general. And so they separate themselves and they find kind of a liberation and form feminist art collectives. Our ladies, they do not, they are not cl- reclaiming the power that they feel they don't have. They, 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 they are not trying to grab the power that they believe it has been not given to them. Uh, they, they are completely not interested in that. Their own power and their own beauty, their own uh, 
impact come off of the total neglection of wanting to be part of the inclusion. They don't want to be included. They don't care. Well, I think this also speaks to the choice to, to make the transition between ballet and modern dance. There was no way we could have told the story we wanted to tell if this, if this company was a ballet company. Um, you know, we, ha we had to make the transition to modern dance because the, you know, the spirit of modern dance, the, the very reason it exists is, is to be rebellious and to be utopian, if you will. Um, and and that, is, that afforded us all kinds of, um, uh, of options in the film to, 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 to build character and to build relationships when you knew that all of them were steeped in this kind of, like I say, like a kind of utopian sense of rebellion. Um, it's ironic a, a little bit once you sort of peek behind the curtain uh, that it would appear that the, the principles are utopian in nature. But, but you know, I, I think about someone like, you know, poor Mary Wigman, who, um, you know, really informed my understanding of who Blanc is, having to somehow uh, negotiate the Nazis. Um, you know, I mean, there, she's, she's someone who certainly was um, complicit in many ways, but not in her heart, I think. Um, but she did remove Jewish dancers from her school. You know, she did allow it to be closed um, and, and, and didn't, uh, didn't pursue something underground. Um, it's, it's just, I think it's, I found her fascinating because she was dealing with a language in terms of modern dance that was meant to release her from all of those things. But, the, you know, the, her moment in time, her context just, it was just overwhelmed her. Beautiful. Well, and I think I think that idea of just like claiming power, finding power where there otherwise isn't any, making it your own regardless. I think that's a great place to wrap this up. Thank you both so much for this. Thank you Honestly. both. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Well, there you go. Oh. <laughs> uh, I mean, did we get to everything we wanted to talk about? Of course not. We would need a hundred hours with them and we still would just be scratching the surface we left out like we had reams and reams and reams and reams and reams of notes yeah so much did not even begin to get addressed yeah but getting to go to where we got getting to go to where we got getting to talk oh my god I getting oh my god <laughs> getting to talk about Suspiria in terms of queer horror yes was so amazing from two that, queer filmmakers talking about it as a queer film which it never gets uh ascribed <laughs> no i i never heard them talk about the film in those terms like i mean i've watched and read so many interviews for this movie and I you just never, really yeah <laughs> go figure but i've never seen them talk about this movie in those terms and it was amazing and the whole i mean We'll get to one revelation, but the Susie, oh. the Susie Sarah revelation to have that confirmed for me, like there are times, like we said, we recorded that interview a couple of weeks ago. And every time I think about that confirmation, I get so happy. Like that is so meaningful. Do you do the happy tears, Stacey? I bet you do. I do, <laughs> I do the happy tears. The happy water comes out. Yeah. Um, oh, oh yeah. Of my of my eyes <laughs> comes out of my eyes. Thank you. The happy water comes out. Oh, the happy water comes out. <laughs> oh dear. 
uh, of my eyeballs. Thank you. <laughs> but Look it is you. it is what the kids say. I'm 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 assuming it is, it must be like what it feels like when the kids say to be seen. I feel yeah. seen, right? Well, it's I mean that was. Uh... One of my biggest takeaways from the movie, it's one of the biggest sort of hearts of the movie for me. I wrote about it, that relationship, the Susie Sarah relationship, very extensively on Final Girl. And I went back and read a lot of my stuff um, preparing for this episode. And I read that. And while I believed everything that I wrote about that, because it is subtextual, um, you know, you do have that moment where you say to yourself, Am I just seeing Jesus in the tortilla here? Do you know what I mean? Because that is a thing that straight people like to do is say like, oh, why do you have to read so much into it? Why do you have to see it everywhere? We internalize that. We internalize that. And so you start to think like, am I seeing too much into it? Because that's what gay people have to do is we've had to historically just look to subtext to find ourselves represented. Mm-hmm. And it's all about reading codes and cues, even when our lives might be in danger and we don't even realize it. Exactly. Or we do. do. You have to do it in real life. And, you know, when you see someone you're attracted to, you have to do it in real life and you have to do it with your fiction. Oh, it's and an exhausting game. It's exhausting, but it's fun. It is fun. And then when it turns out you're right and you go, I knew it! <laughs> And to, so to have that, which is not a relationship, like there are people who have talked about this film and talk about the only relationships they talk, like obviously they talk about Joseph and Anka, but they talk about like Susie and Blanc and it's just like, well, it's a very maternal relationship. And I'm like, <laughs> in one way, maybe, but also they just want to fuck each other. Yeah, like, yeah in you a know mommy's I mean? baby way, maybe in a it's mommy's maternal. Baby yeah, in a mommy's baby kind of way. But no one really talks about Susie and Sarah, like, at no. all. They're like, that relationship is completely overlooked. And I so, would... Uh, uh? Uh, well, I was just going to point out, nobody uh, also speaks about the Susie Marcos relationship. <laughs> as well, they should not. That was when my audio exploded the first time. Like, I... <laughs> That was that was a shocker. I mean, I knew that obviously, you know, part of it was sexual. Like Susie is clearly getting horny from Marcos. God, I love the, that Luca reminded. He was like, "Let's remember." <laughs> yeah, like holy moly, that, holy moly. I hope you have your 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 hat on, your fedora, and your trench coat, and your steno pad with you because that's what we call a scoop in that's the industry. A f- fucking scoop that's a scoop. i have my press hat on honestly I have so many questions i have still. so many questions i have there is a part of me that wishes that the movie just like dared to go there there's another part of me that is so glad it didn't because watching it happen marcos and Susie doing something sexual my vagina would have been so confused <laughs> My vagina would not know where to look. <laughs> it would have been like, oh my God, Susie's, finally, someone is having sex with Susie Banyan. Finally, someone's taking her up. Oh, it's Helena Marcos. And then your vagina makes that Tim Allen sound. Yeah. And then, like, and then the alarm goes, it's like, and the blast door comes down. 
Right? Like there's been a hull breach, the blast door comes down, <laughs> and it's sealed off forever. No, oh, we don't go there anymore. That's That vagina is haunted. <gasps> We don't go there anymore. Like Resident Evil, they've gassed the interior to kill any potential (laughs) infection. There's just cobwebs and giant spiders. That's it. Oh my god. Mila Jovovich is just trying to fight her way out. Exactly. Oh, you're going to die down there. (laughs) You are. You're going to die. So I'm glad it did, but boy, that was the big shocker. Oh, revelation. Hearing about. Just that little, I mean, what they weren't willing to say about the other mothers and the little hints That's the thing. about. I know that they can't say anything because it's still out there. But just like I do think about it from time to time of like, are we going to ever get any more? I don't want to accept the reality that we're not going to get more. And so I think now, like they said, maybe with this episode, clearly. Mm-hmm. We'll get momentum behind it. I think if everybody chipped in, we could probably come up with like a hundred dollars. At least a Jason Blum fifty. At least a good Jason Blum fifty bucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what do they have to do? Get a a hoodie for Mother of Tears. That's like ten dollars. That's like ten dollars. They a monkey. A monkey. <laughs> I'm sure someone has one. Oh, mother of tears. <laughs> She's the mother of tears. Could you imagine that's what they just, just decided to go straight into that? Yeah. Uh, that's, and I would be, put Kyle Richards in it, I would be thrilled. <laughs> but listen, that is the work now, listeners. I mean, on top of actually doing the real work of, like, continuing to, to fight for what's right in this world and support... um particularly like black lgbtq causes yeah um like i just think it's really beautiful that these filmmakers got to speak really for the first time about this movie that so much work went into Mm -hmm. and speak about it incorporating their identities and um that you know it's also just even to even seeing the response of just hinting about this episode that uh that there is a world for this kind of representation and content and we need to actively work to sustain that to keep getting work like that mm-hmm. and i think it all that is also applies very true to um to also our fights for rights and equality and all of it mm-hmm. <sighs> well it's all downhill from here i we're canceled we're can- I mean, where do we go from here? Oh, we'll be back next week to talk about uh, uh, Slumber Party Massacre 3. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> no, I mean, okay, I'll talk Not about bad. that. I'm here for it. I'm here but for that, actually. But We, uh, and we, we still, uh, we do have more plans um, for ways to continue to, to, to get to appear with you each week, but also to continue to, to stand up for what actually matters. Um, yes, yes. We're not uh, trying to, we don't want to divert attention from things, but we also realize the need for a breather now and then. Yeah. Um, and so next week, 
Well, before next week, shall I say. Mm-hmm. Pay attention. If you don't follow us already anywhere, maybe, and you care about this sort of thing, maybe you should. Uh, we're on Twitter at Gaylords of D. We're on Instagram and Facebook at, at Gaylords of Darkness. Um, and we're going to be announcing something um, that will... Uh, um, <laughs> my brain stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I just ran out of gas right there. That's well, yeah, it. Yeah, because you used it all on gas in the. <laughs> I used it all on remembering our Twitter. Uh oh. Well, we have something planned that um, is is going to be a way that we, Anthony and I, can can keep going and feel okay about keeping going. I yeah, because we wanna we want to actively work and model keeping up the fight and keeping up momentum um this that's the most important thing this film that we talked about is about cycles it's about cycles of history it's about cycles of oppression and fascism um and what we do when we're not willing to confront the ghosts that are actively working to bring back those cycles right so i and how funny that november is a recurring month in suspiria (laughs) Yeah, go figure. We have an important November coming up, and honestly, I think, I think if we keep up this same momentum through November, I think we can actually shift some things in a really big way. I hope so. It's a perfect storm of yeah. things. It's you know we've got the pandemic happening. Oh yeah, there's that. Um, but we can't take you know, we can't take hundreds of years of systemic oppression and racism and put them in a backpack and toss them in the river. You can't just like get rid of it. And so just acting as if it's not all happening is is not the way to go forward. Um, A a blackout square uh, a couple Tuesdays ago is not enough. Right. So we're just trying to figure out ways that we can move forward and feel good about moving forward as a fucking goofy show about horror movies. Yeah, because we're also two angry fags. Exactly. And uh, we hope you all are as well. Right. Uh, Yeah. So, so yeah, uh, we'll announce in a couple of days or so what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll be in touch until then. I don't know about you, Stacey, but I'm just going to be seizing here on the floor, foaming at the mouth. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm going to... No. Never mind. I was going to make an erotic joke about Helena Marcos's baby arms, but I, decided, <laughs> but I decided not to. Thank you. I showed restraint. Goodbye. <laughs> Wow, for a haunted tome made out of skin, it's so loosely structured, yet informative. I know, right? Uh, Is it over? It's glowing and spinning on its own, so I'm gonna guess yes. Ah, Oh oh my god! God. Oh Oh my my god! Tune in next time for more Gaylords of Darkness! Ha, ha, ha.